Thank you for allowing me to be here. I want you to know I, uh, it's really an honor. I've, I've just sort of been overwhelmed emotionally even this morning just to worship with you. And even though I've um, not met most of you, uh, I consider myself family to you. And uh, obviously, theologically, we're all family, but at the same time, those of us in Christ, that is, uh, this church, I was telling your pastors this morning, before you were as a church, uh, even in your mother's womb, uh, I prayed for you, and I had a heart for you, and I've prayed for you uh, as you've been born and as you've been established, and now as you've moved into this place, and so it's just a joy to be here with you. And I bring greetings from the saints in Denton, Texas, which some of you have been through there, and uh, some of you lived there, and it's good to see those of you that even, as Pastor John mentioned, were a part of our church for a bit. And uh, just know it is a joy to be here, and I love you very much, and I bring love and greetings and prayers uh, from your brothers and sisters in Denton. And I love uh, Pastor John very much. I know he said some good things about me, but let me just tell you, when he was there preaching to us in October, which I know is a rare occasion, so thank you for allowing him to come be with us and preach to our congregation. It served us so very well. But uh, I learned, one of our elders now in Deaconesses, they named their son after John. Uh, and it's like, well, I knew little John was running around, but then it wasn't until that Sunday when he came that they said that. And I thought, well, number one, I didn't know that. Number two, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and you know, Haddon, I love your name, Haddon, but uh, maybe we should have thought about John as well. Uh, so let me pray again. I'm eager to be with you. I know this is a lot, what we just read, not just in terms of its length, but also in terms of the force of what it is. And, uh, and so... Let me just pray that God would minister to us as we just walk back through it and, uh, and reflect this morning. And so, Father, we thank you so much that, as Pastor John said, you have not left us alone in the dark to try to understand who you are. You have revealed yourself to us, and certainly this revelation and this part of this revelation has given us something, a glimpse of you that we need. And so would you, by your Holy Spirit, as you've already been doing, would you minister to us as we reflect on what we've just read together? And would you change us? Would you release us from the evil one? From our own appetites and lusts? Would you reorient us in ways we need to be reoriented this morning and that are beyond good preaching, they're beyond good singing, they're beyond man's ability. And so we're asking you, we're humbling ourselves and asking you by your spirit now as you have spoken to us that you would change us by your words. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I wonder, just sort of a thought experiment as we, uh, before we sort of walk back through what we just read, um, I wonder what you would think at a sort of foundational level, that a person or a community of persons like a church uh, would need if they knew that they were about to endure through a season of life or maybe even an entire life that was going to be difficult. That if someone knew or a community of persons knew that they were going to be fraught with temptation and suffering in the days ahead, what would be helpful to have for that journey? What would be helpful to know? What would strengthen one's heart? What would deepen one's commitment? What would form one's character in a way that would empower them to persevere in faithfulness? 
and I wonder if you think, I mean, there's many right answers we could come up with, I think, together if we went around and did that. But I wonder if the word vision comes to your mind. That in order for a person or for a group of people to persevere, and to persevere especially in the midst of great suffering or constant temptation, that what we need, what people need, is a glorious vision to base our life on. Because vision, of course, and not rules, vision transforms. Now certainly instruction and rules that are connected to that vision are helpful, but it is vision what orients us toward hope. And I'm not talking about a sentimental hope, I'm talking about a hope that has hardened into perseverance and into resolve and into his revelation as y'all you know, a year ago went through a sermon series on the first you know, part of it, uh, leads to conquering in the way that God speaks about it here in Revelation. And, you know, I once had the privilege, uh, I serve as a chaplain for the, uh, one of the local universities and their basketball team, and I had the privilege of listening uh, as their new head coach came in and addressed his team for the first time. I'd been a part of the program for about eight years, and so when he came in, he asked me to come be there. And uh, being a wise coach who understands how humans work, the first thing that this coach did when he gathered his team was to provide them a compelling vision for them as a group to orient their life around. The team in the years previous to him, the five years leading up to him coming in, they had lost any sense of a unified, compelling vision for a group. And of course, they had begun to perish as a team, as a program because of it. And what this coach intuitively understood, not least because I think he walks by the Spirit of God, what he tapped into though in this initial meeting is that the human heart is motivated, we might even say controlled, by vision. Now, some people are motivated and controlled by a financial vision. Others are motivated and carried along in life by a social vision or a political vision or a patriotic vision. Others are compelled by a vision of achievement or of status or of power or of beauty or of comfort or of service or we could just keep going and certainly this isn't static, right? I mean that at different moments and seasons we're all motivated by different things and even sometimes multiple things at the same time. But what this coach tapped into in this initial meeting is that all of us, including those 12 players there in that locker room, we live our lives captivated, compelled, and controlled by some vision, some revelation of what life is all about. And whoever is at the center of our vision is the Lord of our life, is the person or the thing that we worship. And so after personal introductions, the coach stood up and he shared this compelling, glorious vision for the team to orient themselves around for the rest of their days together as a team. Because what he knew as he stepped in that day, he knew the days ahead were going to be tough. And so he knew that the team needed this hopeful vision to inform everything about their days ahead. Every practice, every meeting, every meal, every trip to the weight room, every word of correction, every word of encouragement, every loss, every win, everything was going to need to be compelled and shaped and instructed by this vision. And the vision that this coach shared with them that afternoon, it was so high. It was so lofty. It was so seemingly out of reach that he actually warned them, and I remember thinking, man, that's interesting. He warned them that if they believed it, and then if they began to speak about it publicly, that they would be laughed at. They would be mocked. They would be ridiculed. And of course, some on the team did believe it. 
And they oriented themselves around that vision. Others did not and even ended up quitting the team that very year. But for those who believed it, or at least began to believe it in that day, and those who oriented themselves around it, those who stayed and kept the vision that the coach provided that day in mind as they persevered through the season, they experienced a triumph at the end of that season that seemed laughable at the very beginning. And it was incredible to watch. And so as we come here to Revelation 4 and 5, though the Lord Jesus is not a coach, he's the Christ. What unfolds in this passage that we just read, it is similar to what I think I watched the coach do that day in the locker room. Because uh, having spoken, if you've read Revelation, and of course, again, you guys read through his particular messages, these individual messages to each of these seven churches that this revelation was given and written and provided to, the Lord Jesus in chapters 4 and 5, he now turns to provide John, and through John, these seven churches a compelling vision for these churches to unite and orient their life around. And the vision that the Lord Jesus provides to John and through John of these seven churches, it is a vision, a revelation that the Lord Jesus knows these seven churches are going to need in order to endure in the hard times that are ahead for them. And of course, it's a vision that we need as well. Now, if you've read Revelation, people often will read Revelation as they move past the messages to the seven churches, and they forget that everything that was revealed by John in all of Revelation, not just the first three chapters, all of it was revealed to John for these seven local churches. And so the Lord Jesus, as he shares with John, he reveals this vision in chapters 4 and 5, and really everything else in Revelation to strengthen local churches, to motivate local churches, to help local churches. And again, these seven churches that he was speaking to, they were churches that were either suffering for their allegiance to Jesus or they were being seduced away from their allegiance to Jesus. And so they needed this vision to endure and persevere in their allegiance to the Creator God and to do so by non-violently resisting the constant bullying and the constant temptations of Satan and his beast, which is represented throughout by the Roman Empire. And so this chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, it really marks the rest of the vision that the Lord Jesus gives to these seven churches outside of the individual messages that he starts with. And unsurprisingly, the vision begins with a clear revelation of who is at the center of all things. Who is on the throne? And it invites us, compels us actually, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, to ask ourselves, what vision is motivating and controlling our lives? Personally, together as a local church, what vision? And who or what is at the center of that vision? Who or what is on the throne of that vision? Because again, whoever or whatever is at the center, whoever or whatever is on the throne of the vision that our life is oriented around is what has our ultimate allegiance. What we are giving, whether we know it or not or call it that or not, we are giving, probably effortlessly, our worship to. And so let's look here, starting in chapter verse 1, and I'm just going to read back through it. There's not going to be a lot of application today. I just want us to be stunned by what we read, and um, and I'll be reading through the SV, and so I know that you're using the Christian Standard Bible, uh, and so I hope that it won't be too difficult for you to sort of translate uh, from 
what I'm reading from to what you're reading from. And so let's look here. It says this, after this, John says, verse 1, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, if you've read Revelation, you'll know that Jesus had just told the church in Philadelphia that he had opened a door for them. And he also told the church in Laodicea that he stands at the door and knocks. And so this this door imagery has already been here in Revelation. And now John, as he turns his head in this visionary experience he's having on the Lord's Day, as he's been swept up by the Spirit, he sees an open door. And he says, right there, he says, and, and the first voice, so this is the voice of the exalted Lord Jesus, which I had heard. This is back in Revelation 1. He says, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this, which is around the rest of the Revelation. And so the Lord Jesus invites John, who's been banished to this island called Patmos, in this vision to step through the door into heaven to receive the Revelation. Now, remember, if, if you've, um, you know, read Revelation as y'all have done, you'll, you'll, you'll remember that Revelation or the, this, this sort of genre of literature like Revelation called Apocalypse, this was a normal thing that happened in this genre of literature. And, uh, and what would happen is in apocalyptic literature like Revelation, revelations were disclosed to human recipients as they were led into otherworldly journeys in places not accessible to the average person. Typically, it's an angel or somebody leading them through. Well, here, it's the Lord Jesus himself inviting John in to go to a place that is not accessible to the average person to show him something. And as John hears and he responds to this invitation of the Lord Jesus to step into the heavens, the very dwelling place of God, we are ushered into what is the second of Revelation's six dazzling visions. And again, these visions are meant primarily not to appeal to our logic as Christians, but to our imaginations. I'm not saying it's illogical. I'm just simply saying that John is not speaking with a calculator. That, that the point is more like a paintbrush that this is speaking through us to us through. And so they're, they're meant, these visions of Revelation, including what we're reading today, it's meant more to be experienced by us as we would have heard it than to be overanalyzed by us. It's meant to pull us as readers into the drama of what John saw. It's not like he's just sort of going, oh, historically, here's what I saw. No, he's saying what he saw so that we would be pulled into it with him and we'd be immersed in it. And uh, that's why I'm not going to give very much application because I hope as the Spirit of God leads us along, we would just be immersed in this vision that the Lord Jesus led John into. Look at verse 2. He says, at once I was in the Spirit and behold... A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So as John is being led by the Spirit here, he walks through the door of heaven, and the first thing he sees is the throne of heaven and the one seated on the throne, God himself. And this throne and the one seated on it, if you read through Revelation, it is at the center of the entire Revelation, which is why it's mentioned in Revelation more than 50 times. It talks about the throne. It dominates this vision that John receives to share with these churches. And uh, and again, if you remember from your sermon series a year ago, in John's message, or rather the Lord Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea, Jesus promised those Christians in that church who conquered that they would sit on the throne that he himself shares with his father. 
And here, as John walks through the door of heaven, he sees that throne and the God seated on the throne. Now, can you imagine? No, you cannot, which is why this is written down for us. And here's what John does. You know, just like he did in describing the Lord Jesus in chapter 1 of Revelation, John, he echoes language from the prophets before him, prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and others who themselves had received a vision of the throne room of heaven. He uses their language to describe what he saw. So it's like a, a gif or a jif. Gif, jif? Anyway, it, what he does is he takes, uh, he takes an older conversation or an older sort of statement and he enters it into a new conversation like we do with gifts. We take this and we put it into a new context and the old thing speaks afresh into a new conversation. This is what he does here is he grabs this language from the prophets and he borrows it, but he doesn't just actually borrow it. He actually transforms the language and the metaphors that they used as he tries his best. He's trying to articulate afresh to these churches what? The raw beauty and the overwhelming glory of what he saw and heard as the Lord Jesus led him into this throne room. And look at verse 3 as he tries to use this language to explain it. He says, and he, speaking of God, he who sat there on the throne, he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which were these beautiful, precious stones. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And again, I don't, mean, I don't think we're meant to like take the rocks and go, oh, this is what God's like. It's, the point is, he's using the rocks and the colors to, to describe splendor. Some of the images that the prophet Ezekiel would even use, he's using these images, and they're meant to overwhelm us. Even as we hear them today, we're meant to, they're meant to stun us of, with the beauty, the sense of majesty, the awe of God. And then he says in verse 4, he says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, perhaps representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Some think that. It, at least it seems uh, is that these uh, elders are the representation of all the people of God, Jew and Gentile together. And they're meant to be exemplars for these seven churches, these elders, pictured throughout this revelation. And there they are. They're clothed in white garments, John said. They had crowns, golden crowns on their head. So again, as these elders are serving as an example and a model for the people in the seven churches, they're wearing the clothing and the crowns and are sitting on the thrones that John promised in his messages to the seven churches that they would receive, those who conquer. And then in verse 5, it says, from the throne, again, let this overwhelm your senses. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, like what happened on Mount Sinai. And before the throne were seven torches of fire burning, perhaps like a menorah burning, which are the seven spirits of God. And, uh, and you know, the seven spirits of God that are first seen in Revelation chapter 1, uh, they're either seven spirits angels who serve God in a unique and symbolic way, or uh, <clears throat> they're a symbolic way to talk about the one spirit of God, seven being this number of fullness to talk about the Holy Spirit who's at work in the world. But here John sees him again in verse six, and he says, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in Jewish theology, you know, the sea often represented this untamed part of creation where evil and chaos came from. 
And yet, the picture here is that in God's presence, just as it'll be a new creation, the sea is completely calm. It's so calm that it's like glass, like crystal. There is not a hint of evil. There's not a hint of chaos in the presence of God. Again, the imagery is majestic. And then John says, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature is like a lion. And the second living creature like an ox. And the third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And this is where a lot of people are like, I'm out. You know, some of those colors I understood, but then we get here, it's like, I mean, eyeballs going everywhere, I'm out. But, but these four living creatures, again, if you've read the Old Testament of the Bible, <clears throat> they're mentioned with slightly different descriptions over and over again in Scripture. Ezekiel mentions them. Isaiah mentions them. Even religious texts from other religions throughout the ancient Near East mention them as well in their literature. And these creatures, at least in the particular way that John describes them here, they seem to be representatives of all creation. So you look there, you've got uh, one that's, representing the wild animals, a lion. You've got one that seems to be representing domestic animals, the ox. You've got one that's representing uh, the, the birds. You've got the eagle. And then you've got, of course, human beings. You've got one representing mankind. And, and what John pictures or sees, rather, is that these living creatures, not cute, half-naked, plump children with harps on a cloud, these living creatures are the angelic beings who represent but also lead all of creation in unceasing worship in the sanctuary of heaven. And you look here in verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they lead in worship. And they never cease to say, Holy, 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 just in case we miss it is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come or is coming. And church, this is the same song sang to the same whole, sung to the same holy God that we see throughout Scripture. And yet something else is going on here. It's interesting to know that the Greeks and the Romans, they used this same language to talk about their chief God, Zeus. And they would chant and sing, Zeus was, and Zeus is, and Zeus shall be. And yet, here the God that John sees on the throne, the one true God being sung to in the heavens, is the God who was, who is, and not shall be, but who is coming. That's different. And so there's a sense here, and we'll talk about it more in a moment, these songs are not just beautiful, they're confrontational to the worship on earth that the neighbors of these churches are inviting them and tempting them to step into themselves. And then in verse 9 it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, by the way, the 24 elders, comes back to them, they fall down before him who's seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And you think, well, that makes sense. Well, it does in, 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 one, in, in one way, but you know, typically in Jewish synagogues and in Christian churches, the elders and others would stand to pray, not fall on their face to pray. 
So this scene that John sees of these elders falling down on their face before God in response to the four living creatures' praise, it would have been striking to John and to these seven churches because the image would have made the intensity of the worship of God in the throne room of heaven palpable for them. It's so intense, you, you elders that normally stand in the church on earth to pray, you cannot stand. You involuntarily fall to the ground on your face before the throne, just like John did before the Lord Jesus back in chapters 1 and 2. And not just falling down, it says, and they cast their crowns, these golden crowns that they were given for victory, right, that represent victory. They cast them down before the throne and they say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why are they falling down? Why is he worthy to receive glory and honor and power? Because you created all things, they say. And by your will, they, speaking of all things, existed and were created. So in other words, the one on the throne is worthy because he and he alone is the creator. Which, of course, as Christians, is foundational to our understanding of the godness of God. God is on the throne And alone is worthy of unceasing glory and honor and praise because God and God alone created all things. Which is why worshiping anyone or anything else in creation is false worship. Always. Because everyone and everything else in all of creation that we might be coerced or even tempted by our own flesh to worship, it's created. It's creation that has been created by this creator God on the throne. And of course, again, the, the elders worshiping the creator God in the way described here, it's, it's hard for us to sense, but it's key for us to grasp that it is confrontational to the worship that these Christians in these seven churches saw happening in their cities and neighborhoods every single day, just like us. In other words, the vision John sees of what's going on in heaven, which is hard for us to feel, because we're so removed from it, uh, it was graphically countercultural for John and for these seven churches. Because in the worship that carried on night and day in the temples and in the streets and in the parades and in the homes of the neighbors that they lived among, what was happening there that they would see as they passed by it on the way to the marketplace, on the way to school, on the way to work, what they would see is people falling down and laying their crowns at the feet of other gods. Typically, gods represented in statues, and most notably, they would see people laying down and laying their crowns before the deified one who is pictured as seated on the throne in all the propaganda of the day, all the posters, all the coins in their pockets, the one who claimed to be both Lord and God, the one who claimed to be sovereign and central in all things, which was Caesar. Lord Caesar in the Roman Empire. And so, for us to feel the force of this vision, part of what we need to do, be helped by the Spirit to do, is to tune our hearts to see this heavenly scene and to hear all of its heavenly songs the way that these seven churches would have. And for these seven churches, the songs of heaven revealed to John here were more than just beautiful. Right, more than just, oh, that's great, that would really rhyme, and that would be great in this stanza with this chorus, and man, that would make a great hymn. Well, yes, certainly that, but more than just being beautiful, 
these songs that they saw, that John saw and then communicated to these seven churches, they were confrontational. All of these songs were songs of hopeful, nonviolent resistance to the pressure and the temptation for these churches to give to Caesar or anyone else what belongs to God alone, which is what we call worship. And even reflecting on the confrontational nature of these hymns in Revelation 4 and 5 and throughout Revelation, uh, it's what led Brian Blunt, who is a theologian at Princeton, um, he wrote a, a, a little introduction to Revelation called Can I Get a Witness? And it's a revelation, it's a, it's a com- commentary on Revelation that he reads Revelation through <clears throat> African-American culture. And uh, it's what led him as he read through these songs uh, to compare these songs here in Revelation 4 and 5 and other places to the music of hopeful resistance that grew up out of the African-American church's historic oppression and current oppression. Right, so he, he, he basically traces like the spirituals that our brothers and sisters in the cover and secret of night would gather to sing in hopeful anticipation. They would cry out in hope these songs and how that that, that sort of spiritual, that root there sort of grew in as he talks about to blues and then the gospel and then even at best hip-hop music where at its best what's happening there is there are songs, there are chants, there are rhymes of hopeful resistance. Songs of not just deconstructing things, but songs of actually providing constructive, resistant, transformative hope to the community. And so he's saying here, man, these songs are like that, like good hip-hop, like the, like the spirituals. That's, what, that, that's what's in these songs, is it's speaking about God, but also in the face of the powers that be that are bullying and tempting God's people. They are saying, no, we will resist because we have a greater hope, and we will put our hope there and find our hope there. This is, what, this is what's going on here. So the revelation of these scenes of worship, including these forceful, forceful songs, it would have strengthened and inspired these seven churches to align and orient their worship, their lives with the worship of heaven and not the worship that they saw in the temple down the street. And this vision and these songs would have also reminded and motivated them, again, to resist giving to Caesar or anyone else what the Creator God alone was worthy of, which is their worship, their ultimate allegiance. This is what John sees. Can you imagine how encouraging and strengthening this would have been to these seven churches and how it should be to us? And then John sees something else. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, Then... I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, a scroll sealed with seven seals. And again, if you've read Ezekiel, though not sealed, the prophet Ezekiel saw something very similar in his vision. He saw a scroll with writing on the front and back that contained words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And, uh, <clears throat> and the scroll here with its seven seals, it represents the royal will. It represents the sovereign plans and purposes and decrees of the one seated on the throne. And in the ancient world, you know, <clears throat> such sovereign or thought to be sovereign decrees from human kings would often be sealed up with seven seals to protect the contents and to sort of communicate their significance and who they came from. And John... <clears throat> Verse 2 tells the churches, I saw a mighty angel, as opposed to a non-mighty angel, I guess. 
Yeah, so, oh, he's a mighty one. Okay, great. Are there any of them not mighty? Anyway, uh, he says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? In other words, who's worthy? Who has the authority to reveal and to bring about God's sovereign decrees and judgments? Who's worthy? And verse 3, it says, and no one. In heaven, or on earth, or even under the earth, no one was able, no one had the authority to come up to the one on the throne to take the seal and to open it or look into it. And look what John says in verse 4. He says, And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And we're meant to pause and feel the tension of this moment of John weeping. And not just weeping, he's weeping loudly. And we're meant to ask, why? Why is he weeping loudly here? Well, church, he's weeping loudly because John, just like the prophets before him, John is longing for God's kingdom. John is longing for God's justice and righteousness to come on earth as it is in heaven. You've got to remember, John has been banished to this island called Patmos, probably by the local government, because of his witness and testimony that Jesus and not Caesar is the world's true Lord. And John knows that those in these seven churches, at least those that are holding to the same testimony, they're being pressured, they're being seduced by the same beast that put him on that island. And he knows that some, like Antipas, they've even already been killed for their witness. And so John... When he's weeping here, he's joining the long line of God's people who have been unjustly oppressed for their allegiance to God in longing for God's justice to cover the earth like the waters covers the seas. That's what he's longing. He's longing for the scroll to be open. That's why he's crying. He wants it to be opened. He wants the God who reigns, the God who sits on the throne, the God who is coming to come. He wants him to come and liberate and vindicate and make all things new. And so in this moment, he looks around and there's no one found to open the scroll. And he says, no, it can't be like this. And it can't go on like this. It cannot go on with God's children suffering. It can't go on with with the innocent, right? With the weak and the defenseless and the abandoned suffering first. It can't go on with the powers of this world thinking that they're invincible, they can just do whatever they want to do with God's children. They can just kick them in the teeth again and again and again. They can just use them for political means again and again and again. He's, he's looking around and going, no, why, Lord? And, and how long will you allow your people and your creation to suffer so much? And, of course, John knows there's no cheap answer to these questions, which is why he's looking around and saying, there's got to be somebody that can open the scroll so God's kingdom will come and so that his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just as a side note, you know, one of the ways I think we gain clarity about what vision is motivating and controlling our lives personally or as a congregation is by looking at our tears. Because what we weep or don't weep weep loudly about reveals what we care about our tears and our prayers reveal what we long for and what we want most and so it's a helpful thing to think about together it's like what do our tears what do our laments tell us 
about the vision that's dominating our hearts. And part of what John exemplifies for us here is that the heart cry that's to be at the center of our vision, the heart cry that compels our tears and our prayers as God's people is the very Godward heart cry that the Lord Jesus himself taught us, which is, Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even for our congregation, you know, we've just tried to make this heart cry more central in our life together. Even as we think about you know, our brothers and sisters around the world today in North Korea and in Somalia and in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and in all of these places where even just these past few weeks, Open Doors has released the top 50 worst places to be a Christian because of violence, because of pressure, that when we think about our lives in this world and what we want most, we're thinking about God's kingdom coming and we're thinking about our brothers and sisters. And like John, we're weeping with them and for them as he models for us here. But then look there in verse 5. John says, while he was weeping, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Beloved, this is the gospel of this revelation. This is the good news of this revelation that John and through John, these seven churches receive from the elder. He's there, he's weeping. And then he comes, I don't know if he puts a hand on his shoulder or what, but he says, weep no more because there is one who's worthy. There is one who has the authority to reveal the scroll. He says, take heart, the Lion of Judah, the root or the branch of David, he has already conquered. He's already won the victory. So he can open the scroll. And again, if you think about the Old Testament, you know, the imagery of the Lion of Judah, it's from Genesis 49 and other Old Testament writings, or the root or the branch of David. It's imagery from Isaiah 11, as well as Jeremiah and Zechariah. And both of these images were used in the Old Testament to refer to a Savior King, a faithful King of God, a Christ that God promised to His people He would raise up from the line of King David, which was Israel's greatest king. And of course, the testimony of Scripture, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that Jesus is the Christ, that he is that faithful Savior King. And so this elder interrupts John's weeping and says, the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the branch of David, he's worthy. He's conquered. He's won the victory. And because he did, he and he alone is worthy to open the scroll. And then John, upon hearing this gospel, in the middle of his weeping, he turns and he sees something as dramatic as I think it is surprising there in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain or slaughtered with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So again, John turns and he sees the one that the elder is talking about. But instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. He sees a lamb that had been slain, but who is alive again. And so in other words, what the imagery seems to be communicating to us is the way that the lion 
The way that the root of David has conquered is not like the beasts of this world conquer. Not by military violence, not by oppression, not by a domination. The, the lion, the branch of David has conquered like a lamb. A Passover lamb who has been slaughtered. He has conquered through loving self-sacrifice by holding fast to his allegiance and his witness to the one on the throne, even to the point of death, even death on Caesar's cross. And so that's why, even as John said in chapter 1, Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's the one that in our witness, we follow his witness. And those slain, this lamb, church, now stands because God raised him and God vindicated him in his courtroom. And now he is the lamb that is filled with power. That's what those seven horns represent. Throughout the Bible, a horn is representative of power. And seven, that number seven is representative of fullness. And so he is, he within himself has the fullness of power. And not just power, but wisdom, these eyes that are symbolic for wisdom and knowledge. And so the image here is that this lamb who was slain is the lamb who shares the same spirit, the same power and wisdom with the one on the throne. And he, the Lord Jesus, is a lamb that, just as he said he would, he's been given all authority by his father. Remember Jesus at his trial? Why they killed him, actually. is He said, are you the Christ? He said, yes, I am, and you will see me coming in the clouds to my Father to receive power and authority. And right here, we see it happening, just like he said. And it says in verse 7, and he, the lamb, he went and took the scroll. Think about this. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, think about this, the four living creatures And the 24 elders who were worshiping God, they fell down before him, before the lamb. And each of them, they had their harp and their golden bowl, these instruments of worship. And of course, the, the full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang in worship a new song saying, worthy are you, lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. And again, why? Why is he worthy? For you were slain. You were slaughtered, and by your blood you purchased or you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Church, this is an amazing thing, that the four living creatures and the elders worship the Lamb. They worship the Lord Jesus the same way with the same intensity that we saw them worship the one seated on the throne. They worshiped him as they worshiped the one seated on the throne. And they declare, like God's people have always done when he's done some new act of deliverance, they declare with a new song this new thing God has done through this lamb to make him worthy to take the scroll and open it. He was slain. And through his blood he ransomed, he purchased for God a people from every tribe, and language and people and nation, even as we prayed about already this morning. And so this new thing that compels a new song is what John, if you've read Revelation in chapter 1, he opens the revelation with in chapter 1. In this introduction where John's writing to these churches, he breaks actually into spontaneous praise himself as he's talking about the Lord Jesus because as he tells the churches, Jesus is the one who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He loves us like he loved you, did love you. He loves you currently, and he has freed you, freed us from our sins by his blood, and he's made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And so the living creatures and the angels sing the same thing here. And this language of ransom, of purchasing, it is economic language that was used with regards to buying slaves or prisoners of war from the marketplace. And so what this language is communicating is that through the Lord Jesus Christ, loving self-sacrifice on the cross, he has purchased us for God. He's bought us back from our slavery. He's delivered us. He's liberated us in being slaughtered. The Lord purchased these people, us that are Christians, from their sin and from the oppressive powers of Satan and the beast that has enslaved us. And just as God did with his people Israel after he delivered them from their slavery in Egypt, the Lord Jesus has made the people that he's purchased a brand new kingdom of priests to God. A whole new kingdom. I know we don't talk like that. We talk about it. We're a church. We're a community. Well, and that's right in good language. But here it's a kingdom. We're a nation. Christians are a nation of people spread throughout all the nations and the peoples of the world. And we're a kingdom of priests. We're a nation of priests united not by our passports, not by the flags of the sort of geopolitical countries, not by the color of our skin. We're united by our worship, our witness and our testimony that the Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. And that that's who we give our ultimate loyalty and allegiance to. Not to Caesar or the state or anything but the one true God and to the Lamb who loves us and is slaughtered, was slaughtered to ransom us. And if you're here this morning, just really briefly, if you're not a Christian, this is why we sing to God. Because through his son, he loves us more than any other thing that you are giving your life to. There is no, there's no job, there is no friend, there is no number in your bank account that loves you like the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. All those other things, if you give yourself to them as the center of your life, they will enslave you. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you, and when you put him as the center of your life and orient yourself around him as Lord, he frees you because of his love for you and through his death for you. And so if you're not a Christian, we'd love to talk with you more about that as a church before you go today and just help you understand why we love Jesus. It's because he's loved us in this way. It's why we sing. It's why we gather. It's why we give money. It's why we do everything that we do is because of this great love that he has demonstrated for us. But then look there at verse 11. We're almost done. John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. So now there's angels, other angels, numbering, he says, myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands. One translation I read said millions upon me. It's an innumerable number. The point he's communicating is around the throne, which is at the center of all things, is an innumerable number of angels that we can't even imagine. And they're saying with a loud voice, verse 12, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we can just keep going on and on. Worthy is he. Whereas earlier, 
the one on the throne was declared early worthy because he's the creator of all things. Here the lamb, the Lord Jesus, is declared worthy because he's the redeemer. And that's like a theological side note all through Revelation. It's about the creator God through the Lord Jesus Christ redeeming his people and renewing his creation. That's the whole theology of, Revela- of the whole Bible, actually, from Genesis 3 moving on. And, and it's here that that's what they're singing as these songs are joined together. The songs to the one on the throne of the Lamb, they're joined together as one. Same song, same God. In verse 13, 13, it says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. You get the picture? Everything (laughs) saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures who got the worship party started said, Amen. And you know what happened? The elders fell down again, and they worshiped again, and it just repeats. Repeats. And even right now, I trust that the Lord Jesus, by His Spirit, were to give us a vision of the throne room. It would resonate with this, because this is what's still happening right now. As the four living creatures continue to lead out, So family, you could take a deep breath. That's a lot. And as we end here, this is an overwhelming, stunning vision that Jesus reveals to John. And through John to these seven churches and to us. The scroll wasn't even opened. You got to keep reading for that to happen. And I'll let Pastor John lead you through that. But they didn't even open the scroll. Before that's open and the sovereign just decrees of God are revealed and envisioned, John and these seven churches are first reminded of what? Of who is at the center of all things. They're reminded who is really on the throne. Who is really in sovereign control in judgment over heaven and earth. And the one who is on the throne is not Caesar, but it's the one who created all things. And the one who created all things, his purposes and his plans are not in doubt because his lamb, who is the true ruler of the kings of the earth, the true Lord, he has conquered. And he has been given all authority to reveal and to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And though he has not finished doing that yet, he has already won the victory. The Lord Jesus has already conquered and one day he will come and he will finish What he started. He will wrap up the victory that he has already claimed on behalf of his people and his entire world. So, beloved, this vision, it's meant to strengthen and comfort these churches and us. So, where do you need to be strengthened this morning? Where do you need to be comforted this morning on this journey as an exile through this world, to your inheritance? Because What this teaches us is that regardless of the headlines of the world that are nonstop, if you have not noticed, good news is we can just look at all the headlines from all of the world now because of technology and be extra overwhelmed like no other generation in history has been able to be. So they don't stop. And not just the headlines of the world, the headlines of our own lives. Whatever those headlines say, the gospel The good news that this glimpse of heaven proclaims to us is that our God and his lamb and not Satan or his beast 
are on the throne. And despite all the chaos, despite all the pain, despite all the suffering, despite all the anxiety, despite all the loneliness, despite all the depression, despite all the injustice, despite all the seduction and all the scariness that we experience in this world, in this wilderness, our God reigns. And He has not forgotten us. He's not. He's not forgotten you. And He loves you. And He is totally committed to leading you, to leading me, to leading his people safely home by his spirit. And, you know, the struggle, if you want to keep reading Revelation, the struggle throughout the rest of it can be pictured really as a struggle between these two thrones, the throne of God and the throne of Rome, which is representative of the throne of Satan. And the key question throughout Revelation, which demands an ongoing decision from every Christian, every person, is will we follow and orient our allegiance, our vision around the beast or the lamb? And that brings us back to that original set of questions that we began with this morning. What vision, what revelation is motivating and controlling our lives? And who or what is at the center of that vision? Who or what is on the throne of our relationships, of our aspirations, of our tears, of our calendars and bank accounts and decision-making and, you know, all of it. What we, what we do with our phones, what we look at on our computers, what we say with our mouths or our thumbs, what we, what we listen to with our ears, what we filter our circumstances through. Who or what is the orienting center, the vision and the center of that vision that we are giving ourselves to as a people? And family, the invitation that we're reinvited into today is to align our lives and to join our voices to this vision that Jesus showed John. The invitation is to reorient our lives and our testimonies, both collectively and personally, around the one on the throne and his lamb, and to do so knowing that there is no one who loves us, and there is no one who is worthy of our allegiance and affection and worship and very lives, if it would cost us that, but our God and his lamb. And so, Father, we pray that this vision that you gave to John to give to these churches that we've now received, standing in the line of faith, that you would root our life together and personally in it. And where we have lost our orientation around you in certain areas of our lives, where we're tempted a certain direction or where we've just been discouraged a certain direction that is not the direction that this vision points us toward, to look to you in hope and to know that you're ruling and reigning and that you love us. Would you recenter us? Like right now, would you, would you begin to recenter us and reorient us? And as we already prayed earlier, would you forgive us? We've given ourselves to other visions, other gods. Like we've laid our crowns and we've fallen on our faces and we've shed our tears for other gods that aren't real. Forgive us. There's no God like you. There's no Lord but 
the Lord Jesus Christ who loves us and who gave himself for us. And Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you were slaughtered, that you ransomed us and that you were raised from the dead and that you now sit at the right hand of your Father and you are bringing the kingdom to completion. And until the day that you do, give us all that we need to persevere faithfully in allegiance to you and no other, we pray in your name. Amen.